We are returning to the Gospel of Mark, and we're almost finished with this Gospel. And then, Lord willing, after the Gospel of Mark, we will go to Ephesians together, look at the book of Ephesians, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, look at the glories of that book. It is really has surprised me in many ways, that book, Ephesians. I'm looking forward to, to preaching that as well. We have three sermons left in Mark, and then we'll move on to Ephesians. Um, but it's, it's great. Here we have seen the climax of the Gospel um, in verse 39, for example, in Mark 15, 39, when the centurion said, truly this man is the Son of God. And now it's almost like Mark's conclusion. And we're going to read the, the last section together. We're going to read from verse 40, Mark 15, 40, till chapter 16, verse 8. Hear now the words of the living God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Jesus, to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. It's a reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for yet again a wonderful privilege, opportunity to hear your word, to sit in your presence, to hear you speak to us. Father, I pray that as this sermon comes to us, Lord, that you will speak clearly to us, individually, corporately. I pray, Lord, that you will draw our hearts to Jesus, that we may count everything as a loss for the sake of knowing him, for the sake of following him, even on the costly road of discipleship. May we follow the example of Joseph of Arimathea, being willing to risk everything to show and to demonstrate our devotion to Christ. Lord, please come and show us our sin, but above all, Lord, show us the Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this 
text I've just read is the last Mark and sandwich of the entire Gospel of Mark. In fact, many old manuscripts would end the Gospel where I ended it. Um, the ancient manuscripts in Mark chapter 16 verse 8, that was the end of the Gospel, where the women were scared and they didn't tell anybody. And you'll notice in your Bibles there's a big bracket at the top of verse 9 that says many of the ancient manuscripts, verse 9 to 20, was not found. And I'll do a sermon on those verses as well and how we should understand them. But if this is correct, if the gospel really did end in Mark chapter 16, verse 8, then that was the original ending of Mark. That's the last thing Mark wants you to know when he was writing his gospel. That's the final story. The final point Mark is making is with this last Markan sandwich. For those of you who are new with us, what is a Markan sandwich? Um, so Mark, the way he writes his gospel, is he often begins a story, pauses, goes to a second story, and then resumes the first story later. So he's building a sandwich, right? He begins a story, the middle part, and then he ends the story that he began. And when you see that, it, he does it right throughout Mark. He does it from the beginning. If you read Mark, you'll see he does it over and over and over again. And whenever you see that, the Mark and Sandwich, you should realize that Mark wants you to know the middle part is the main point. The middle part, middle section of the Mark and Sandwich is the, is the message Mark wants to communicate to us. Remember, the gospel writers are like writing from a, like a diamond perspective. They're all looking at the same event, but they're looking at it from different angles, trying to communicate to us who Jesus is and what discipleship looks like. So what is the sandwich here that we see here? So verse 40 to 41 begins the story of the women, the women, and he mentions all these women. And then in the middle, we have Joseph of Arimathea, who's burying Jesus. And then the story resumes again with the women. You see, so that's the sandwich. And so the middle part is the main point. Um, Mark wants us to focus on Joseph and see him as a model disciple, a model disciple for you and me to imitate, to follow. And the, what he's doing is he's contrasting what Joseph did with what the women did. So do you see, um, Joseph was faithful and bold, and the women were fearful and did not share what they saw. And that's the point. He wants to give one final call, one final challenge to us, one final reminder of what it means to follow Jesus, that we should count the cost of following Jesus. That although forgiveness and grace is free, but following Christ will mean often losing your job, your friends, sometimes even your, your, your life for following Jesus. It's a costly thing. And you need to think about it now, not when you are in the middle of the, the test. It's like, you know, you don't study your test when you write the test, right? You study beforehand and then you're prepared. In the same way, don't just jump in on the train of salvation Consider the cost. It is costly to be a Christian. It is difficult. And so I think many people will fall away when persecution comes because they've never really counted the cost that being a, a disciple is, is, is difficult. It, it costs you your life. But as well, I just want to mention, although the gospel ends in failure, we know by the rest of the gospel story and the rest of the Bible that the women didn't stay silent, right? They, they maybe have been initially silent, but they did eventually go and did tell other people. But Mark is trying to make a point. Mark is making a point to contrast the fear of the women with the faithfulness of Joseph. 
So for this afternoon, we're only going to look at the patty, the, the middle part. We're only going to zoom into that middle part. Next week, we're going to look at the grace of God despite the failure of the women. And then we're going to do one sermon on verses 9 to 20 about how to understand these, um, these verses that seems to not be original to Mark. And that might ask, raise questions like, do we, can we even trust our Bibles? So that's going to be in two Sundays from now. So let's just slow down and look at Joseph. And again, just a reminder, throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's always these people that Mark shows as an example. He, for example, the blind man that just follows Jesus. He was beside the road and then he follows Jesus. And the woman that breaks the alabaster flask and anoints. So Mark often uses these people as illustrations of true discipleship. And that's what he does here. And we're going to simply look at five lessons, five lessons for discipleship that we can learn from Joseph's story. We can look at five lessons we can learn from Joseph's story that we should apply to our discipleship, that we should look at him and say, this is what a true disciple is, and this is what we must be as well if we are the, a disciple of Christ. Look at the, con the context of our passage is Jesus has just died at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Okay, 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon, Jesus was dead. Look at 42 verse, the, the beginning of verse 42. It says, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So the day of preparation was the common name for a Friday because it, the Sabbath was a Saturday. And so they call it the day of preparation because on a Friday you have to prepare everything so that you don't have to work on the, on the Sabbath, on the Saturday. And Mark even interprets it for his readers. Remember, Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. So he says the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So he's even interpreting it for us. But something we might not know about the Sabbath is that the Sabbath started at sunset. Friday sunset, the Sabbath starts and it ends Saturday sunset. So from sundown to sundown, that was considered a full day according to the Jewish mindset. Now think with me. Jesus died at 3 p.m. How much time is left for the sun to set for, for them not to be able to bury Jesus? Right? A few hours are left, so it's, it's an urgency for Jesus to be buried quickly, lest they bury him on the Sabbath. And it was also Jewish law not to let anybody hang on a tree overnight. It was a Jewish law. Even for your enemy, the Jews were not allowed to allow even their enemies to be hanged on a tree for longer than a night if they, if they have died. Deuteronomy 21.22 Deuteronomy 21.22 says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Again, there we see the gospel. Jesus became a curse for us that we might become the, the righteousness of God. It says, you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you. But now think, of, think about it. Jesus just died being rejected by the Romans, being rejected by the Jews, who would dare to ask for the body of Jesus? Who would be bold enough to ask for that body that has just been crucified? And here's the first lesson. The first lesson we learn from the story is that discipleship is for everybody. Discipleship is for everyone. So let's just ask this question. Who was this man, Joseph? Look at verse 43. Look at verse 43. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
So Mark goes in great detail to tell us who this man was. He was a respected member of the council. That is, he was part of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin who a few days ago, or the previous day, condemned Jesus to death. So this shows us not everybody in the Sanhedrin agreed with their decision. In fact, Luke makes it clear. Luke 23, 51 says, Joseph had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So he was part of that group, but he did not consent with their decision to kill Jesus. So here is someone, a Jew, from a high position, a religious leader, and he went forward to ask for the body of Jesus. Now, the other Gospels give us some more information about this man. Matthew tells us he was a rich man. Joseph was a rich man. And John tells us he was a disciple of Jesus. So he's a rich man, a disciple. He was a, a member of the council. And this is the lesson we should take away. Discipleship is for everybody, both Jew and Gentile. Both for the poor and for the rich. It doesn't matter from your, where you come from, your nationality, your race, or whatever. Jesus calls all of us to repent and to follow him. Remember, that's in verse 39. We saw a Gentile. Verse 39, the Roman centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, this was the man of, this was the son of God. This man was the son of God. So we see here a Gentile becoming a disciple of Christ. And now just after that, we see a Jew from a high place becoming a disciple of Jesus. So that's, that's the first lesson we should take. The discipleship call is for all of us. doesn't matter who you are, where you are from. All of us should follow him. Here's the second lesson. The second lesson we can learn from the story is that discipleship is costly. Discipleship is costly. There's a reason why we read in verse 43 these words. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. He took courage to go and ask for the body of Jesus. Now, why did he need courage? Isn't that just a simple request that could have just, the worst case scenario was to say no? Why did he need so much courage? I've already hinted at that already, right? It was costly for two reasons. Number one, because he could have been seen as an enemy of Rome. If you ask for the body of a crucified criminal that has just been crucified by Rome, you could have been seen as aligning yourself with that criminal and you too could lose your life over that. One commentator wrote this about the crucifixion. He says, crucifixion played a central role in Rome's terror apparatus. It was Roman custom to allow crucified criminals to hang on crosses until they decayed as a warning to would-be miscreants or rebellious slaves. So they would just leave the bodies to be the warning. So this was costly. He could have lost his life even if this mere request for the body of Christ. But the second reason, it wasn't just costly because of what he could lose from Rome. It was also costly because what of what he could have lost from the Jews. He was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. So to ask for the body of Jesus and to bury him will at least... Make everyone suspicious of Joseph and his motives. Is this man maybe too a disciple? If that is what they concluded, he could lose everything. He could lose his job. He could lose his position. He could be cast out from that society, treated as an outsider. 
And that's the lesson. Discipleship, to follow Christ, is costly. As we follow Jesus on the hard road of obedience, no matter what our culture says or what people think of us, it might cost you everything. Or for some of you, this might even be worse than losing your life. It might cost you your reputation, what people think of you, your good standing in society. It might cost you a friendship to follow Jesus. It might cost you your property, your house, your car. Your... It might cost you a family member or your job to be a disciple of Jesus. This, all these things happened at the time the Bible was written. And Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. Welcome to the club. So my question for you is, have you counted the cost, really? Have you really counted the cost of following Jesus yet? Do you realize that this is what it will cost you? Are you willing to give up even your most cherished relationship. Jesus said, whoever doesn't hate their mother and their father or their wife cannot be my disciple. It doesn't mean you should physically hate them, but in comparison to loving Christ, they should be, it shouldn't even be a contest. And I don't know of anybody I love more than my wife. And Jesus says, that relationship with your wife must be like nothing compared to your love for me. Have you counted that cost? Think of your best friend. Think of the most cherished friendship relationship you have. Are you willing to give it up? If, if it's a choice between Jesus and this, this relationship? Well, that's what discipleship will cost you. You must be willing. Lord willing, you don't have to give it up. And, but you have to be willing. That's the second lesson. To follow Jesus, to be a disciple is costly. Number three, which leads us to our third lesson. We should learn from this. Discipleship is to commit to Jesus. It's, it's, to, it's to go all in. It is not a half-hearted type of a, a, a relationship or commitment. Now, this is where I think that's why Mark is making this contrast between the women and Joseph. Notice, this is a small observation, but look at verse 40. Verse 40, Mark is saying, there were also women looking on from a distance. So he's contrasting the women looking on from a distance and Joseph, who is going forward, asking for the body of Jesus. And remember, Peter did the very same thing in chapter 14. Look at chapter 14, verse 54. 14, 54. And Peter had followed him, that's Jesus, where? At a distance. So Peter was, when, when Jesus was on trial, Peter was following from a distance, close enough or close, but not too close to be dangerous. In other words, the picture here is that discipleship is not a spectating. It's not looking on from the outside. It is to commit. It's to boldly confess Christ publicly. Like the centurion and this act of devotion to follow Jesus. Of course, just to remind you, there is grace for the spectators. Because for Peter, he even he denied Christ three times and Jesus forgave him. So being cowardly or being fearful is not the unforgivable sin. But it does show a lack of commitment, a lack of giving yourself to Christ. And that, remember, this is Mark's final plea for you. This is Mark's final message to you. Have you committed yourself fully to Christ? Or are you just looking on the outside, just interested 
in Jesus. You like Jesus, but you won't die for Jesus. You, you, you are interested in the gospel, but don't ask too much from me. And that is serious, because if we remain cowardly, if we remain on the spectator side, the Bible says we are not true disciples at all. Revelations 21 verse 8 makes this fearful statement about who will end up in the lake of fire one day. And the first group is this. Revelations 21 verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the cowardly, those who constantly reject because of fear, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So to be cowardly, to, be, to not commit to Christ, is not you know, having a good life and having the best life. It is having no life or having eternal life. That's the, 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 the difference. And this is because it is possible to really, really like Jesus and not to follow him at all. It is possible to really be interested in him and never commit to him at all. And I suspect that too many of us, too many of our modern day Christianity is in this very dilemma. We like Jesus, but we don't commit to him. We are spectating, but we're not following. We never commit to Christ. We never commit to him all the way, wherever he might lead us. We are content for other people to be baptized, for other people to become members of a church and serve Christ in a church. We are content for other people to serve the Lord. But for us, it's just too comfortable to stay where we are, to do what we are already doing, to be all alone. So where do you stand with Jesus? Are you in hiding? Are you double-minded in your walk with Him? Listen, how many more sermons will it take for you? How many more sermons will it take before you commit how many more days must God give you? How many days must God spare you? How many times must God be patient with you before you will truly repent, leave your sin and follow Jesus? How many more days of sunshine and rain will God lavish upon you? Good food he will give you. How many more times will he give, just constantly supply your breath day after day before you will follow him, before it's too late to follow him? Listen, now is the time to commit. Now is the day of salvation. You have one life and life is short. Don't waste it. Don't think you have eternity. Don't think, I think as younger people, we're tempted to think we are going to live until 80. We're going to live until 100. And then I hear a story of a 23-year-old who dies in a car accident. And it's horrific, it's, but that's the reality. Any one of us can die any moment. And then it's all of eternity. Is your sin really worth it? So how does this commitment look practically? How does it look like in real concrete ways? Well, before you ever commit publicly to being a disciple, you need to commit in private to follow Jesus, to give your heart to Him. In its most basic form, this will look like following Christ by spending time in his word, by dedicating time alone with Jesus, to pray, to read his word, to, to, to know him. 
You must have a living relationship with Christ alone before you will ever have a public relation or public confession of Christ. Then move to the next area of publicity, you could say, to your family or those closest to you, your, your, your roommate or before you share your faith with strangers, share your faith with your friends, share your faith with those closest to you. Like the simplest thing, like praying with your wife or your husband. And I'm not talking about praying before you eat. I'm, pray, I'm talking about praying together because me and my house, we serve the Lord. That's what we do here. You know those little people, if you have children, those little people in your house, those little sinners, that, the diapers you have to change. Okay, am I only speaking to myself and, and, and Mark? <laughs> those little people, you have to teach. The Bible. You have to show them publicly what it means to be a Christian. Isn't it amazing? that God, and, and also to, to teach them wherever you go. And whatever you do. When you look at a plant, you say, look at this plant. God made this plant. To, to have God on your lips. Regularly point to Christ. So parents, what an amazing opportunity to teach these little people who's cohabitating in our homes. The word of God and the gospel. That's a wonderful privilege. We read this morning, 2 Timothy, in our uh, service in Clarksdorp, and it was just beautiful. The grandmother of Timothy, the mother of Timothy, and now Paul says, the faith has passed on from your grandmother to your mother and now to you. So you see, that's what we should do. We should, our faith is generational. We should pass on our faith to our children and to our children's children. And husbands, if you're married, say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lead your wives in prayer. Lead your wife in reading the Bible together. Because you are a disciple of Jesus. That's who you are. That's your identity. But then, to further commit to Christ after you've committed to Him, you also commit to being baptized. In fact, that's the very first commandment Jesus gave. He says, go and baptize people. So the first public way of committing to Christ is to submit yourself to baptism. That's the first commandment Jesus gave you. If you can't even obey the first commandment, how will you obey the rest? The first one is be baptized. You need to be baptized. That's a sign of the new covenant. That's like the wedding ceremony where you put on the ring and say, I am taken. I no longer belong to the world. I belong to Christ. And I'm asking all of you to keep me accountable, to walk with me, that I might keep my faith in the Lord. Now you belong to Christ and you belong to his church, his bride. So that's the very first commandment. That's how it looks like. Then you commit, like I've said, to belong to a church. And beloved, I think this is probably one of the biggest challenges we have today is people don't commit to anything, let alone to a church. Because again, the symptoms of entertainment culture and church is a drive through the one that gives you the services the quickest or the food tastes the best, those are the ones you're going to go to, but not settling down to a church not giving yourself in a church where you can serve faithfully with the gifts that god has given you remember just like marriage marriage isn't our idea it's god's idea in the same way the church is not man's idea it's god's idea he, he designed the church he thought about this idea of having a body together where there are elders and deacons and where elders are leading deacons are serving and members loving one another carrying one another's burdens that's his plan so do you belong to a church? 
Or are you floating around? Are you loose? Do you know who your leaders are? Your spiritual leaders? Do you know who's going to call you when you don't come to church anymore? Do you know who's going to keep you accountable? That's what it means to commit to Christ. And then commit to whatever you do, your studies, your work, with gospel intentionality. So do what, do an, live an ordinary life with God in your heart, in your mind, and loving other people and showing them the same Jesus that saved you and changed your heart. So do whatever you do. It's an ordinary life, but with gospel intentionality. And that's how it looks like to commit to Christ. So my question to you is, have you committed yet? Is Christ not just your Savior, but is He your Lord? That's a question we need to answer even tonight. Which leads us to our fourth lesson. Discipleship is devotion to Christ. It is devotion to Christ. We see this in the, in the act of Joseph and how he buried Jesus. Look at verse 44. Verse 44 says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. Now remember, since criminal norm, some criminals normally would last for days on the cross before they would die. They would hang on the cross for days. But Pilate was surprised. In a mere six hours, Jesus was dead. Remember, the, the centurion and the, the Roman gods had to break the legs of those criminals on the cross to make their death quicker. But they didn't do it with Jesus because Jesus was already dead, which the water and the blood testified that he was really, really dead. So Pilate made very sure in verse 45, he, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So Mark calls it a corpse. So um, I think many of our translations say the body, his body, the body. So the point is, Jesus was dead. He wasn't alive. There was not, it wasn't a fake death or a resuscitation in the grave, and that's how the resurrection happened. None of that. He was dead, and the Roman centurion could testify. And a Roman centurion who have seen thousands of deaths will not make that mistake. He was dead. But then we read this beautiful act in verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So who took Jesus off the cross? Joseph did. Joseph took the body of Christ off of the cross. Can you imagine this picture? He is your savior, the one that has just died for your sins. And you can have the privilege of burying him, taking him off the cross. And there, because there he paid for our sins. And that was a, it was a burial custom for the Jews to wrap a body in a linen shroud. And he lays Jesus in a tomb cut out of the rock, which was a very expensive tomb, only for the rich. And normally the rich save those tombs for their families, their, fam their family members. And that's where Jesus was buried. So what Joseph did to Jesus was a beautiful thing. Just as, um, remember the women in chapter 14, just to turn one page back. Look at 14, verse 3 to 8. Very similar to this. Mark 14, verse 3 says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves, Indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. 
and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Just like this woman did a beautiful thing, anointing the body of Jesus for burial. So Joseph did a beautiful thing by burying him in a very costly tomb. And the, le the lesson we learn from this is that discipleship is not just to do certain things for Jesus or for God. It's not just to be bold in public. Discipleship is specifically a love and a devotion to a person, to Jesus himself, to Christ. It is to be devoted to him. You're not just dedicated to a set of ideas, however important that is, to have the true gospel and the truth, but fundamentally you are dedicated to a living person. As we read in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is the devil's main plan with your life, to draw your devotion and your attention away from Christ. He will use the coronavirus, he will use anything he can to try to withdraw your attention from Christ, away from him, your true husband. So let me ask you, are you just... A religious person? Or do you have a devotion to Christ? I mean, is there in your heart a love for Him who loved you first? Following Jesus doesn't begin with what you can do for Him, what you can bring to the table. Following Him begins with His love for you. You see, that's how He wins us. It's the King of Kings climbing off of His throne, stepping down, dying for our sins, raising from the dead, and calling us to follow him as he has loved us first. Only he can satisfy your heart. Only he can make you joyful. Relationships won't be doing that. Accomplishments won't do that. Money won't do that. Pleasure won't do that. And if any of you have tasted any of those, you'll know it only lasts for a short while. But Christ is the bread of life for whom we were created. He is the one that satisfies us. And therefore, the one you're looking for is him, even if you don't know it. You are desiring Him. And let this be a reminder that you should, that's, what, that's the reason you should be waking up in the morning is to know Christ, to know Him, and to make Him known. So let us repent and return to our first love. Not just to duties and things we need to do, those things are important, but to a person, to love Him. And lastly, we see the subships for everyone, it is costly, it is to commit, it is to be devoted and lastly, discipleship is worth it. It is worth it. So I've been focusing on what it means and what it might cost you to follow Jesus. But why should we? I mean, what's the appeal to say, hey, follow me and you will die? Um, okay, what about no? That doesn't draw me to you. Like, so what should motivate us to give up everything to follow Jesus, what should, be this what should motivate this radical self-denial, willing to give up our wife, our husband, our children, our jobs, everything to be able to follow Him? What is that motivation? Why is it worth it to do it? Well, because what you gain in following Christ is worth a billion times more than whatever you lose. 
In other words, part of counting the cost is not just what you lose, but what you gain. We see this in the very attitude which drove Joseph to do this. Look at verse 43. There's a little phrase in verse 43. Mark 15, verse 43. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. That word looking can be translated waiting, anticipating, expecting the kingdom of God. It, it was a joyful expectancy of the kingdom coming. Like a child waiting in anticipation for Christmas Day to open that massive present that he just, uh, yeah, they are seen from afar in the closet. Our parents were never created. They always kept it right there in the closet. So we knew it was. But, but that anticipation, that joy of knowing that's going to be mine in a few days. Joseph had that attitude. He had this anticipation for the kingdom and in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near. Remember Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the kingdom of God refers to two things. Number one, the kingdom refers to God's spiritual rule over his people. So the church, all those who are saved is part of his kingdom. There's a king and they, he has his subjects. But it's a joyful relationship because the king died for us. And therefore we gladly live for him. So, but secondly, and perhaps even primary, primary, the kingdom refers to that final second coming of Christ when he will wipe away every tear from your eye, when he will make all things new, he will give you a resurrected body in a physical, eternal, earthly kingdom on a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering, and best of all, you will be with God forever, the one who created you. It refers to that time when Jesus will come and remove everything the curse has brought. Genesis 3, everything that frustrates you, everything that's horrible in this life, Jesus will remove. And it was that attitude of Joseph that led him to go and ask for the body of Jesus. And that's the reminder we need. If you only focus on this little, short, 80 little years you have, then you're not going to sacrifice, you're not going to give up everything to follow Christ because you don't see the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. You are blind. But if you would have one millisecond of a vision of the glories and the pleasures of heaven and one millisecond of a vision of the horrors and the torments of hell, you would not even think about it. It would be foolish for you not to follow Jesus. But that's what should motivate us. It's the hope we have. The Bible actually says Christians are like sheep that are counted to be slaughtered. We are, in the world's eyes, we look like we're just wasting our lives. But because there's a resurrection, because Jesus is coming again, because he will make all things new, everything is worth it. Everything is worth it. So whatever you lose, you cannot even compare what you gain for following Christ. And that's what you need to see by faith. Beloved, we must all die. All of us will die. Ten out of ten people die. That includes you. What will your money mean to you then when you die? What will your achievements, your trophies, your certificates, your what will that mean to you when you die? What will... What will you, when you look back, say, I've accomplished this, but then you die? 
and after 100 years, people don't remember you. So what, what is the meaning of life? What is all of this about? What are we doing here? What will your pursuit in your life mean then? It will mean absolutely nothing. So don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Don't settle for just a few seconds of joy, just a tiny piece of pleasure for 80 years. But seek eternal joy. Seek the joy that never ends. Seek your happiness in God. So my favorite quote from C.S. Lewis, it says, because we cannot imagine, it's like a child playing, making mud pies in the mud because he cannot understand what is meant by the promise of a vacation at the sea. And that's how we are. We are half-hearted creatures. We're playing around with all these little things, playing in the mud, not thinking, not, not knowing what it could mean to go to a vacation on, at the sea. So don't settle for this little temporary life. Settle for eternal joy with Christ in His kingdom. And He will wipe away every tear. Titus 2 verse 13 says, Waiting or looking for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the petrol in the tank. That is what should cause you to give up even the most pleasurable, greatest thing you can, you can think of because Christ is better. He's better. So my question to you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that one day Jesus will come again, that He will raise the dead, that He will judge us for what we did in secret, what we did in public? Do you believe that one day He will make all things new? And that's why discipleship is worth it. It's like trading 10 rand for a million rand. Okay, I'll give up my 10 rand. Thank you for the million rand. It's like... So where do you stand with, with Jesus tonight? What are you pursuing in your life? Will you stop just being a spectator, following from a distance? And will you commit? Will you follow Christ? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we don't see by nature, by our own ability, the the unending pleasures. Okay, power is off, but let's just close in prayer then. <laughs> okay. Father, we don't understand uh, the call to love you, the call to follow you. Lord, we are so blinded by our own little world, our own little lives, our short little lives. Father, please give us eyes to see See your glory, your beauty, your value. And Lord, knowing you is better. Knowing you and following you is better than all the pleasures of this earth put together. For as Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, may we echo those words in our hearts. May we count the cost, not just of what we will lose, but also of what we will gain and commit to following you. So Father, Please draw us to yourself. Please 
bring us into your presence, and may we truly be your disciple. We pray in